Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. This is the Falcoholic Podcast, the official podcast of the Atlanta Falcons on the SB Nation Podcast Network. This is David Walker on today's special podcast. We continue our review of the Thomas Dimitrov years with the Atlanta Falcons. To help me with this task, I've invited special guests to join me on each of these episodes as we break down the trades, free agent signings, and draft picks made in the Thomas Dimitrov era. My guest today is Matt Caroli of the now defunct Rise Up Reader. Matt, thanks for joining me. It's great to be here, D-Dub. Um, you know, when you told me about this idea that you were uh, going to be doing with the podcast, I was excited because, you know, this is kind of an exercise I like to do quite a bit, however depressing it might be sometimes to go back and, and revisit some of these years and some of these drafts. And 2012 was certainly a memorable one. Um, you know, in the regular season, uh, the draft and the offseason, not so much, but i um, excited to break it all down with you today. Yeah, absolutely. So let's uh, jump into it. We are covering the 2012 season. This is the year that the Falcons went 13-3, and uh, ended in heartbreaking fashion with their loss to the San Francisco 49ers uh, in the NFC Championship game. I still contend that Roddy White should have gotten the pass interference call. I think many Falcons fans agree with me. So what brought us into the 2012 season? Let's talk about what happened in 2011. Uh, the Falcons suffered an embarrassing playoff loss to the Newark Giants in the first round where they only managed to score two points. The team ended up moving on from defensive coordinator Brian Van Gorder and offensive coordinator Mike Malarkey. And at the time, they brought in Mike Nolan and Dirk Cutter to replace those two men, respectively. Uh, Of course, 2011 obviously was the big year where Thomas Dimitrov made the move up in the draft to get Julio Jones. They gave up a ton of draft capital, and that will have repercussions that that would ultimately be felt in the draft class we're going to talk about today. So that brings us to 2012. And I want to start our discussion, Matt, with the free agents. And before we get into some of the guys that they brought on, some of the guys that they kept, I want to talk about some of the guys who were allowed to leave or who were cut. And the first name I want to bring up is uh, linebacker Curtis Lofton. They obviously drafted him with the intention of him being the long-term successor to Keith Brooking, who ended up leaving after the 2008 season. Lofton was a guy that they were extremely bullish about. And to be fair, in his time in Atlanta, he was an excellent linebacker. He was more of a run-stopping linebacker. And in that time frame, the NFL game was beginning to change. Uh, you know, He was someone that was not really known for his coverage. He was more of a traditional run-stopping linebacker. Uh, but still, I think there was some confusion as to why the team would let him leave especially given the fact that they didn't have a lot of great options the year before. They did draft Akeem Dent in the third round. I'm not sure that that was the player they thought would be sort of the centerpiece of the linebacking core going forward. 
Uh, but what are your thoughts on the team moving on from Curtis Lofton? Yeah, this one's kind of a double-edged sword just from the standpoint that, like you said, Curtis Lofton kind of was you know, the centerpiece of their defense for his first four years in Atlanta. Um, and, you know, he was a guy that certainly uh, did the, you know, the bulk of his work on those early downs was, you know, kind of known for being a run-stuffing linebacker. Coverage at times, uh, you know, he, he was a liability, and I think that's kind of the reason um, that Mike Nolan kind of decided to move on from him. But the reason where the double-edged sword comes into play is they didn't really have a great plan to replace him. And that's kind of where you saw, you know, those lost years of 2013, 2014, the types of linebackers that they were rolling out um, were not that great. You know, 2012, they were able to get by. Sean Weatherspoon emerged. Uh, they kept Mike Peterson around. You know, Stephen Nicholas was was a solid veteran. Um, but beyond that, that's really where moving on from Curtis Lofton, not having a great plan, Akeem Dent not panning out, that's really where it hurt them. So, you know, I understood the move from a long-term aspect um, as far as, you know, where the game was heading and, you know, coverage um, is key and you need to be able to cover on defense, you know, in order to, you know, survive in this passing game where, where it was trending. Um, but in the short term, um, wasn't a great move. And, and, you know, again, Curtis Lofton went on to new Orleans and then I think he maybe played a year in Oakland. Um, didn't really have many more years after that. I think he had three years total after he left Atlanta, maybe. Um, so again, it, it probably would have been nice to be able to keep him around for those last couple of years, just as a stopgap. Um, but again, long-term, I, I understood the move. It's just in the short term, that's really kind of what reverberated in the 2013, 2014, when, when you're rolling out undrafted free agents like Joplo Bartu and, and everyone's favorite, Paul Warlow. So oh, we have our first Paul Warlow name drop. Fantastic, man. I love it. Yeah, we, we have Curtis Lofton's departure for that. Um, but obviously the linebacking crew, um, you know, was a mess and a disaster. And, and that was something that Dan Quinn, when he came in 2015, really had his work cut out for him. And, and it was because of the fact that they had no long-term plan after Curtis Lofton. Yeah, excellent points on Curtis Lofton and sort of where the linebacking core went after that. As you mentioned, Warlow, Bartu, and it honestly, several, several years before they were able to find uh, really guys that could play at a high level again at that linebacking position. Uh, so I want to move on to the next name on the list. And this is a player who I think for Falcon spans, there may be a mixed uh, set of opinions on him. I'm of the thought that he was underappreciated in his time in Atlanta, and that is wide receiver slash special teamer slash kick and punt return specialist Eric Weems. Obviously, as a wide receiver, he didn't do much. Uh, and But his role on the team in special teams, I think, is undervalued. He was a very steady, very reliable kickoff and punt return guy. Uh, and he is you know, maybe underrated in what he did on the coverage units. I feel like he was one of those guys that you could just drop him on the field and you always got consistent quality production from him when it came to uh, kickoff and punt coverage. And, you know, I think people always think of punt returners and kick returners as being guys that are really supposed to deliver big. Uh, But he was a steady, reliable influence on this team, and they let him walk. And I feel like even in that 2012 season, there were some struggles uh, in special teams after he left. So what are your thoughts on Eric Weems and his departure as well? 
Yeah, I'm not in that group of people that wasn't a fan of Eric Weems. I'm with you. I I think he was um, a great return man. You know, he was a Pro Bowler in 2010. Um, I'll never forget. I was actually there. The uh, it's probably the only memorable moment from this game, but the divisional round playoff matchup against the Packers uh, at the conclusion of that 2010 season. You know, kind of when the legend of Aaron Rodgers was born, and, and they just kind of stomped the yard with the Falcons. But Eric Weems had a great return. 102 yards, which I believe at that time, and I don't know if he still has the record, was the longest return touchdown in postseason history. So, again, a great return man, um, a great guy on the coverage unit. You know, he pretty much led the team uh, in special teams tackles on an annual basis when he was with the team. And so, you know, when they let him go, yes, it did bring us Devin Hester, and those were it was it was fun to have one of the greatest return men of all time. Uh, in Atlanta for a couple of years and to watch him, you know, break Deion Sanders return record was fun. Um, but, you know, as we saw hindsight's 2020, they ended up bringing him back in 2014 and kind of admitted, like, Hey, you know, we, we should, never, we should, yeah, whoops, we should have never let this guy go. And it would have been kind of fun to see, you know, I, I guess Eric Weems did get a pretty decent contract and he kind of went with the money. And I don't know if the Falcons could have fit that in their budget, but it would have been fun to have, you know, Hester and Weems on the team at the same time and kind of, you know, see what uh, Keith Armstrong with Keith, with Keith uh, was Keith the still, still the special teams coordinator at the time, I believe, right? Yeah, so it, it would have been cool if Keith could have, you know, uh, maybe cooked up some kind of special returns where both of them were on the field at the same time and you often see, some, you know, those underround type uh, gadget plays. So, yeah, it, it was another one that, again, um, Short term, I guess it's kind of the opposite of the Lofton thing. Short term, I, I guess, was okay, you know, because they had Devin Hester. Um, the coverage units did probably fall off a bit, but long term, you know, it didn't make a lot of sense. And and we saw then that they brought him back and ended up, you know, undoing that mistake. So yeah, this was another one that they probably should have, you know, would have been cool if they could have just kept. Um, but you know, at least unlike the Lofton one, they were able to bring him back and, and have him for a couple more years and, and have him during the Quinn years, which were which were nice. Yeah, absolutely. So to round out the discussion on the other departures, these are a list of guys that honestly aren't. we're not going to spend much time talking about them, but I just want to round this out. Cornerback uh, Kelvin Hayden, tight end Reggie Kelly, uh, safety James Sanders, and center Brett Romberg. Now, moving on to some of the guys that the Falcons did end up keeping. So players that were on the roster in 2011 that they kept around into 2012. And I want to start with these two names because – I think these two positions going forward for the Falcons, it took several years if they even replaced uh, one of the positions at all. Uh, so the two guys I'm talking about, and I have forgotten that this happened in this 2012 season. Uh, the first name, defensive end John Abraham, got a three-year deal worth $17.7 million, And center Todd McClure, who got a one-year deal worth 990000 Now, both of these guys were obviously incredibly important veterans on this team. Todd McClure was, uh, you know, there from Ryan's rookie season until now. Uh, John Abraham was still one of the best pass rushers the Falcons had ever had. He was still performing at a high level. Both guys were on the wrong side of 30. I believe Abraham was around 34. McClure was around 34 or 35. Uh, so the team clearly 
knew they need to replace these guys over the long term, but they still kept them around for this 2012 season. So, Matt, what are your thoughts on the Falcons, and in particular, again, GM Thomas Dimitrov making moves to keep these two important players around for what would have been uh, ultimately a very successful 2012 season? I think before I get into that, just noting some of these contract terms, I mean, for a pass rusher of John Abraham's caliber to get him for five and a half million or so, like it just starts to show you how the salary cap has really taken off. Cause you know, even though John Abraham was, you know, 30 pushing 30 years old, uh, you still see pass rushers now getting 10 to 11, $12 million a year at that age. So, I mean, that, that's just crazy in itself, but yeah, I totally agree. I mean, Abraham, um, you know, he he was the one guy on that defensive line that still struck fear into opposing offenses. So his presence was absolutely critical to bring back. And I think, you know, I, I really would have liked to seen because, you know, if memory recalls, he started getting a little nicked up in, in that postseason run. I, I remember him in that NFC title game against the 49ers kind of trying to walk off a leg injury and maybe some of that played into the decision, but, you know, he did then have a good 2013 season with the Cardinals. So I think, you know, that was a case of them kind of moving on one year too early, probably on Abraham. Um, and then when, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, Todd McClure, I mean, again, to get him for like a vet min deal practically um, was awesome to bring back your, your veteran pivot. Um you know, the guy that stabilizes the front helps Matt with the calls. Um, and, you know, I totally agree with the point as far as him then not getting brought back and kind of retiring uh, after 2012. You know, we'll get into it a little bit more when we talk about Peter Kahn's, but certainly center was a position in, in total flux for three solid seasons before the Falcons finally went out and spent some money and got Alex Mack in 2016. Yeah, what what a great point. You know, obviously, we saw the struggles that Matt Ryan had in the offense without a dependable center in front of him. And, you know, 2013, 14, 15, that's three full seasons where Matt Ryan struggled with guys like James Stone, Mike Person, uh, Peter Kahn's, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, And honestly, they've never replaced uh, John Abraham, even to this day. So we're eight years in. And how many guys have we burned through uh, and been unable to replace the best pass rusher in, in Falcons history and really not even get close, uh, which is what's, what's sad. So uh, unfortunately, this would end up being the final season for both of them. But I, th- I think Dimitrov does deserve credit for keeping them around for this important 2012 season. Now let's talk about some guys that were actually drafted by GM Thomas Dimitrov and finally came around to getting their first big contract outside of their rookie deals. Uh, these next three guys were, you know, homegrown talents. Uh, first of all, defensive end Croy Bierman. He got a three-year deal worth $9.1 million. Safety Thomas Decoud got a five-year deal worth $17.5 million. And wide receiver Harry Douglas got a four-year deal worth $12.5 million. Uh, so these were guys who obviously – ended up being contributors uh, multiple years for the Falcons. And I, I would argue that despite some history with a player like Bierman, you know, who was a fifth-round pick, I, I feel like these were, were good players. Uh, Decoud had a, you know, several good years, and obviously Douglas as well. So what are your thoughts on this trio, the, the, the Dimitrov drafted players that finally got their contracts, Bierman, Decoud, and Douglas? 
Yeah, I think they were all fair. And again, you know, I continue to be amazed at, at the values uh, of what the players were. I mean, that's my biggest takeaway uh, of this conversation right now is just um, to get that type of position. Um, you know, again, a guy do it all man like Croy Bierman, um, certainly I thought was fair market value. And again, other than, you know, there wasn't a whole lot else with the pass rush, um, but Croy, you know, was able to provide some of that and was able to provide, you know, some of the stuff in coverage at times in, in Mike Nolan's exotic looks. So really a very important uh, cog to that defense. Um, you know, Thomas Deku, you know, he enjoyed, uh, you know, a Pro Bowl season in 2012. So, you know, they Dimitrov looked very smart very early on by giving that out prior to the season. And then, you know, lastly, Harry Douglas, um, you know, a solid number three man, um, you know, definitely fit the locker room well, fit those guys next to Roddy White and Julio Jones. Um, unfortunately, and, and I hate to have to bring this up, but, you know, one of the everlasting memories of Harry Douglas, and again, we're talking 2012 season, so it has to be said, but that damn turf monster in that, in that 2012 NFC title game, you know, the man could have walked into the end zone if he just stayed on his two feet. And, and who would have known, you know, you never know what the Falcons, they, they could have ended up, you know, surrendering, uh, you know, a touchdown at the end then regardless. We'll never know. But, um, man, I would have I would have loved to seen how that would have shaken out if he just stayed on his feet and, and walked into the end zone for that touchdown. But, again, regardless of that, Harry was, was a solid player. Um, even a 1,000-yard receiver um, a year or two after, you know, this 2012 season, um, you know, when injuries, yeah, when injuries to, uh, you know, to Roddy White and Julio Jones hit, you know, Harry Douglas was able to step up. And I don't know if that was, you know, more, uh, you know, to say about Harry and his ability or maybe Matt just as a quarterback being able to, you know, um, dish the ball to a lot of guys and, and have a lot of guys have success and put up numbers. But um, again, uh, Harry Douglas was uh, a valuable number three guy for a long time. And, um, you know, I thought it was a contract that, that he deserved to get prior to this 2012 season. Yeah, I actually really like Harry Douglas. We actually went to the same high school, Jonesboro High School. Obviously, I was there many, many moons before he was uh, giving away my age, I guess, at this point. Uh, let's talk about the remaining guys on this list. Cornerback um, Brent Grimes was franchise tagged in this 2012 season, which ultimately ended up being a one-year deal worth about $10 million. And I want to circle back to him and, and talk a little bit more about uh, his, his situation here in a moment. Quarterback Chris Redman, one-year deal worth the vet minimum. Uh, running back Jason Snelling, three years, $4 million. I completely forgot about him being on the roster at this point in time uh, within the context of the 2012 season. Uh, defensive tackle Vance Walker got a one-year deal worth a little over a million. And long snapper uh, Joe Zelenka, for whatever uh, that's worth, probably the, the minimum that they give to the, the long snappers. But I, I do want to circle back to Brent Grimes because at the time, the Falcons had committed a lot of money to cornerback Dante Robinson. And I think many Falcons fans, rightfully so, thought that Brent Grimes of the two was the much better corner. And the Falcons had sort of, you know, avoided trying to give Brent Grimes a really big contract. And, and certainly the, the Dante Robinson contract was looming large over that. And, and then you end up in the situation where Grimes only plays a half a game for, for the entire year. He, he went out 
in the first half against the Kansas City Chiefs in game one of 2012, and he would never play for the Falcons again. So, Matt, your thoughts on these remaining names, and in particular the situation with Brent Grimes and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I'll touch on Grimes. I mean, that one stings probably the most um, just because, as you as you mentioned there, uh, we only got to see him for one game on his franchise tag season uh, towards Achilles in that opener in Kansas City. And, you know, he, he absolutely was the number one cornerback on this team. Um, you know, he was a pro bowler in 2010 uh, when he had five interceptions. He had six the year prior. And really what stings the most is this is arguably – uh, the biggest player that Thomas Dimitrov kind of let go and get away. Uh, and, you know, you, you can't fault him too because, you know, he's coming off a major injury um, the year prior who missed four games. So, I mean, there, there is a history there and, and, you know, I, I don't know exactly the deal he got in Miami, but whatever it was, he ended up, um, you know, being you know worth every single penny because he was a three-time straight pro bowler, um, you know four interceptions at least in each of those seasons. Um, really became you know one of the marquee cornerbacks in football. Um, so that hurts that you know they couldn't have him because he would have been he would have been great to kind of transition into those Trufant and Robert Alford years, and you really would have had that three cornerback trio that they were hoping to have in 2012. You know, when they brought back Grimes and when they had Dante Robinson and then, you know, we didn't even get to it. And I'm sure we will in, in a little bit here, talk, touch on it more. But, you know, they, they got Asante Samuel via trade. So that was their plan that, you know, Thomas wanted to have, you know, a solid three man group there of veterans. Um, it never came to fruition because of Grimes injury. And it's unfortunate and it happens. Um, but the biggest thing is just the fact that he kind of got away and and became one of the better cornerbacks in football at a time when this Falcons defense was was one of the worst. Um, it does sting. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do want to move on to some of the guys that the Falcons did ultimately bring on to the team, and I want to jump straight to the one trade that they made in this offseason because it was a significant one, and you sort of hinted at that, and that is uh, they traded a seventh-round pick, seventh-rounder, to Philadelphia for veteran corner Asante Samuel. And at this time, Samuel was still playing at a, at a relatively high level. He was a good player, you know, good history in the NFL. And, you know, I, I think Falcons media, Falcons fans, all sort of universally agreed at the time that this was a steal. You know, getting a solid corner for a seventh-round pick. And he ultimately bore that out in his time in Atlanta. He, he was absolutely worth uh, that pick and probably more. Uh, and especially in the light of the fact of what we just talked about with Brent Grimes missing the majority of this season. Uh, what are your thoughts on Don- Thomas Dimitrov pulling off this trade and bringing in Asante Samuel? Yeah, I mean, it was an absolute coup. And, you know, Dimitrov didn't make many moves um, to write home about in 2012, but this was certainly one of them. And I think if nothing else, you know, Asante Samuel brought a swagger to this unit that was sorely needed. Um, just a guy that's, you know, played at the highest level, played in Super Bowls before with New England, um, you know, been a multiple-time Pro Bowler, had a season where he had 10 interceptions, which is just, you know, mind-boggling to think about. Um, you don't see that too much anymore. Um, so 
Yeah, just just an absolute ball hawk, a guy that knows how to bait quarterbacks. Um, you know, I'll never forget how he baited Eli Manning in that Giants game. That was just absolutely awesome. Um, so yeah, just, just a great pickup. And again, you know, talking picking up on the conversation about Brent Grimes. You know, can you imagine if if Dimitrov didn't pull off this move, you lose Brent Grimes in Week One. Um, you know what they would have at cornerback. You know, they have Dante Robinson, who was, you know, very up and down for his entire Falcons career. Now they did have this this other guy, Robert McClain, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a sec. So maybe that would have they could have passed, but I can't imagine not having Asante Samuel and getting to the point that they did in the NFC title game. So again, an absolute steal of a move. Seventh round pick. I mean, you know, I would have given a fourth or a fifth round pick, and, and I still think it would have been worth it based on his season and his level of play still in 2012. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm still a big fan of this move. I still think in Thomas Dimitrov's time in Atlanta, this was one of the best trades he he pulled off. Maybe second only to getting a second rounder for Mohamed Sanu from the Patriots. Uh, this I, I want to touch on another player that the Falcons ended up bringing in in free agency. And you hinted at it, and this guy ended up being just an, another fantastic signing for the Falcons. That is Robert McClain, cornerback uh, Robert McClain. He he was in Atlanta for several years, had a really good run here. Bobby Mack, he, he actually, if I remember right, was one of the highest-ranked corners on our team uh, by PFF score in that 2012 season. He came in. You know, he, he played primarily as our nickel corner and ended up being one of our best defenders on the team. Uh, so, again, you know, I think as we look at the success that the entire team had, in particular the defense, especially when you've lost a player like Brent Grimes to injury, the fact that they were able to bring in this free agent who really nobody knew much about. He wasn't, you know, someone that uh, people were, you know, banging down the door to sign him. And he comes in, turns in a phenomenal season as that nickel corner uh, give me your thoughts on this signing and, and really just another another big win by Thomas Dimitrov. Yeah, I mean, Robert McClain was an unsung hero of 2012, you know, filling in for Brent Grimes when he went down. Um, absolute gem. You know, this and the Samuel move were, were Thomas Dimitrov's best work in 2012 and really kind of gives him a salvageable grade on this offseason. And as you mentioned, you know, he was he was one of PFF's, you know, highest ranked cornerbacks at 83.4 grade in 2012. And I think I threw this out on Twitter over the summer when I was kind of revisiting, you know, some of these 2012 games during the quarantine. I think Robert McClain is the best Falcons nickelback of the last 10 years. I mean, Brian Poole is probably the only other one that comes to mind, but you know what Bobby Mack did in that 2012 season. I mean, the, the Monday night football game in week two against the Broncos when he intercepted Peyton Manning. I mean, that's one of the highlights of this season for me. And uh, I, I just think all the way throughout, he was a solid player, just man, really, really fortified uh, a unit that was in total flux after week one, not knowing how they were going to replace their franchise tag player and Brent Grimes. So again, Robert McClain, um, gem of a signing, a guy that was a no namer started his career in Carolina, played a season in Jacksonville, but it wasn't until he came to the Atlanta Falcons in 2012 and stayed here for three years where he really made his mark in the NFL. And again, just a great player. And, and who would have, uh, you know, I, I don't know if the Falcons would be where they were. Just like I said with Samuel, I don't know if they would have made the NFC title game if it wasn't for Robert McClain. I want to blow through the rest of these names pretty quickly. Um, they also brought in quarterback Luke McCown, 
uh, again, another name I sort of completely forgot uh, about in the context of the season. Uh, tight end Chase Kaufman, uh, who had that the 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 sideline catch, I believe it was in the playoffs. Uh, do you remember that catch? Yep, absolutely. I mean, that that was uh, probably the only you know only highlight of his career, but certainly was a great catch um, in that Seattle game. A guy that was you know very highly. Uh, rank coming out didn't live up to that potential, but he'll always have will always have that toe tapper uh, in that Seattle game to look back on. So, yeah, absolutely. And uh, some of the the final names: safety Chris Hope and uh, linebacker Lofa Tatupu, who ultimately didn't. I don't think he even played the regular snap uh, snap in the regular season for the Falcons. So, uh, and that closes out the free agency discussion for 2012. Obviously. You know, some good moves here, the Asante Samuel move, the Robert McClain move. And, and honestly, it was as much about keeping some of the guys that they had drafted, some of the guys that had been around for a while, like Abraham and Tom McClure. So the obviously the next big component of this is what he did in this draft class. And that is going to be a very interesting discussion. But before we get into that, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. And we're back on the Falcoholic Podcast. This is Dave Walker. I am joined by Matt Carolee. We are talking about the 2012 season under former Falcons GM Thomas Dimitrov. In the first half, we talked about free agency. Some of the guys that Dimitrov went out and brought on to the team, the guys that he kept around, some of the guys he let walk. Now we're going to talk about this infamous 2012 draft class. And really, I think as part of the discussion with the 2012 draft class, we have to talk about what happened in 2011. This, you know, the Falcons in 2012 would not have a first round pick because it was part of the package that they gave in order to move up with the Browns to draft Julio Jones. So in many ways, you can look at this first round as the first round pick for the Falcons in 2012 was also Julio Jones. But obviously giving up a first round pick, a fourth round pick uh, is, has a has a consequence. And the Falcons wouldn't draft until the second round, I believe the 55th pick uh, with this draft class. And this first round was loaded with a lot of talent, guys that would go on to become longtime contributors, guys that are still playing in this league, like a Fletcher Cox, um, you know, that are still high level contributors uh, in you know, in the light of that, Matt, uh, when we think back at the Julio Jones trade and just the sheer amount of draft capital it gave up and how this 2012 draft class ended up playing out, um, would you do it again? Would you make that trade for Julio Jones? Or do you feel like the draft capital that was spent was just too much for a player, even the one the caliber of Julio Jones? I mean, if you're going to play that game, you have to look at where the Falcons would have been picking in 2012 in the first round, which would have been the 22nd overall pick. Cleveland Browns ended up taking Brandon Whedon, which is a major yikes moment for them. Um, you know, I, I actually tweeted this out. I mean, the Browns did not take advantage of the picks that the Falcons gave him. They, they got Brandon, Brandon Whedon, um, 
They got a nose tackle, Phil Taylor. They took a fullback, Owen Marisic, in round four. And then they took Greg Little, the wide receiver, which I guess would have been, you know, if the Falcons wanted to get a receiver and they didn't, they didn't end up making the trade in 2011 to move up. You're talking about getting Greg Little, who flamed out in the in the league after a couple seasons. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm doing this trade ten out of ten times. Again, you look at Julio Jones. You look at what he's meant to this franchise. The type of the type of guy he is, the type of person he is. I mean, just an unproblematic, undiva type receiver in today's era is just almost unheard of. So. I do it again. You look at what they could have had if they stayed put at 22nd. I'm looking, David DeCastro staring at me right in the face. That would have been nice to have. That would have stabilized the right guard position until the current day because um, David DeCastro has still been a solid player for the Steelers up until this moment. But again, passing up on Julio Jones, who's going to go down as probably a top five receiver of all time, if not higher. I'm okay with those consequences to miss out, uh, you know, on, on a right guard. Who's a good right guard, Pro Bowl level right guard, but, I mean, the type of impact that Julio Jones, I mean, we're even seeing it now in the games that he has not played in this 2020 season. Um, certainly Dirk Cutter has a, has a part in that for the offense, you know, fizzling without his presence. But, I mean, he's certainly a big, important piece to this offense, and he has been, you know, since the moment Julio Jones was drafted. So, for me, no regrets. You know, I do this trade 10 out of 10 times. Yeah, I think I'm with you there. Julio Jones is just one of those guys that he, he transforms an entire franchise, and his mark on the Atlanta Falcons will be felt long after he retires. So with that said, let's get into the actual draft picks. So in the second round, with the 55th pick out of Wisconsin, the Atlanta Falcons took the infamous Peter Cons, the center. Uh, who's coming out with the the pedigree of being a, a Wisconsin offensive lineman? Uh, and I want to say because I feel like hindsight is twenty twenty. You know, we can look back and make fun, fun of these players, but at the time, Cons was considered one of the best center prospects in this draft class. He was a guy that was again coming out of a, a school that was highly respected for the offensive lineman that came into the league. Uh, so even though we know he hasn't panned out now, you know, looking back. I think going in, this pick made a ton of sense. Todd McClure was on the wrong side of 30. It looked like he would retire. He, in fact, did end up retiring uh, after the 2012 season. Uh, So this was certainly a position where they had some need, and the round made sense. So, Matt, what are your thoughts on the drafting of Peter Kahn's? Yeah, I mean, the way I remember it back in 2012 was, you know, I kind of viewed it in a similar light when Peter Kahn's fell to this pick a guy that was widely regarded as the best center prospect amongst, you know, the consensus. I I didn't see anything wrong with it. Um, Again, you know, there was an obvious need. There's the pedigree, like you mentioned, of Wisconsin, an O-line factory. So right then and there, you know, I don't think, you you know, you can fault the move. Now, again, you, you look back at it, you look maybe why it didn't work out. You know, Cons didn't do well in the bench press. He he was one of the um, he he had the lowest amount of reps or one of the lower amount of reps at the combine for offensive linemen, which you know sometimes can be a red flag. So and then you know you see how that transitioned to the next level, and and he he did deal. Uh, he had some issues with strength, dealing with strength, and got overpowered at times against you know NFL, NFL caliber defensive linemen. And then you think it, who was the O line coach? What scheme did they run? 
2012 through 2013, their O-line coach was Pat Hill. Then they had Mike Tice um, the year after in 2014. Both those guys ran man-blocking schemes. And one of the things, you know, I always used to remember telling myself when watching this team, you know, during those late Mike Smith years is, man, the personnel that they have is so much better suited for his own blocking scheme. And, and I think Peter Collins was the a classic example of that. And that's why it didn't necessarily work is, you know, they fit this guy in to a scheme that didn't really suit his skill set. And I think that, you know, if I had to say why it didn't work out, that would be one thing I'd point to is that, you know, Pat Hill, Mike Tice ran man blocking schemes. And it wasn't until Kyle Shanahan came in 2015 you know, that he, that he implemented a zone blocking scheme. And at, at that point, Peter Kahn's kind of fell out of favor. He wasn't a draft pick, you know, didn't put any good tape on. So why would a new regime want to keep him? Um, but, you know, who's to say if Kyle Shannon didn't come around sooner and was the coach um, that Peter Kahn's might have worked out. But again, in the moment, it, it made all the sense in the world. Best center prospect. He fell to 55. They have the need. They have to try to replace you know, Todd McClure, you know, after 2012. So, you know, looking back on it, you know, I don't, I don't know how you can fault them now. Again, you know, if, if we were in the position of what do we do differently? Well, you know, Levante David was there a couple picks later, a guy that's been, you know, very underrated for the majority of his career, but nevertheless, an absolute stud in the middle of that defense. And, you know, why not upgrade your defense? We talked about, you know, how they needed a middle linebacker to replace Curtis Lofton. So there was a need there, but I guess they had so much faith in their third round pick Akeem Dent filling those shoes. That's kind of why they, they, they pivoted off of that plan maybe, but man, it would have been great to have him and kind of hurt a division rival, um, you know, in the same move. But, um, you know, again, looking back at this first pick, uh, it's hard to, to really, you know, say like, Hey, um, this was totally off the wall, came out of left field. Like, why would they make this pick? I mean, the logic behind it made sense. It's just it didn't work out, and sometimes that happens in the draft. Yeah, I guess what makes it worse is in this particular draft class, this is the one where the future of the uh, Legion of Boom was built. Uh, you know, this same round, uh, the second round was where Bobby Wagner was taken. And this is, you know, uh, as you mentioned, you know, they, you also have Levante David, guys who are still playing in the league, still playing at a high level. Uh, you also have, you know, tackle uh, Kalichi Osamele. Uh, and, uh, you know, Tyson Klebo was nearing the end of his time. And, you know, he, that, that certainly would have been a need uh, for the team as well. So obviously, you know, the, the Falcons did end up going centered. The, the move made sense, but it had repercussions ultimately. Um, third round pick. Now, now we get to go into a pick where there were some definite issues with uh, the guy that they took here. Uh, Matt, we, we certainly can laugh about this one or cry, uh, if if you will. You're absolutely right. Yeah, this this is the one right off the bat where it's just like when this pick happened, I'm like, who, who who's Lamar Holmes? Yep, and with that, with the 91st pick in the third round out of Southern Mississippi, the Atlanta Falcons drafted tackle Lamar Holmes. And I will say this, I, I don't know why I remember this, but I remember an interview with Thomas Dimitrov not too long after he drafted Holmes, and he referred to him as a wide load, uh, which is appropriate. The guy was six foot six, over 330 pounds at the time. He was an absolute monster of a man. 
um, huge arms, huge hands. Uh, and honestly, he was one of those guys that, you know, he, he looked like he fit the athletic profile. He was obviously very, very raw coming out. Um, but third round felt incredibly rich for this pick. I think a lot of people thought this guy would go late rounds and probably potentially be an undrafted free agent. This felt like one of those picks where Thomas Mitroff was really reaching and he was just thinking, ah, yeah, I'm going to prove you guys wrong. I'm going to find this, you know, 10-year tackle uh, in the middle of the the draft that no one knows and it's going to look like a brilliant move. And it obviously didn't play out that way. So, Matt, your thoughts on Lamar Holmes in the third round? Yeah, I mean, this was by far the worst pick of this class. I... I get, you know, again, you bring up the height and the weight. You know, you get where they're coming from because of how that 2011 playoff game with the Giants ended and they just got pushed around and, you know, couldn't do anything on offense and, you know, kind of started up front. Um, and and there's the whole consideration of Tyson Claybo getting up there in age and, you know, Sam Baker's been banged up and, you know, in and out of the lineup. So, you know, you need to add some tackle in there. You need to have some plan, contingency plan for the future. But, man, Lamar Holmes wasn't it. He, he just – that – again, when, when it was picked, I'm like, who is this guy? It seemed like a, a couple rounds at least of a reach. Um, and, again, you know, I, I wasn't studying these prospects back then, but you just look down the list a little bit and see, you know, what other tackles could they have taken, who who panned out more. And um, Bobby Massey's a name that comes to mind, was in pick 112, so, you know, about 20 picks after Lamar Holmes uh, in the early fourth round, went to the Arizona Cardinals, and he's carved out a pretty nice career for himself on the right side now in Chicago. So, um, again, if they did want to get bigger up front, did want to kind of have a plan at tackle, you know, that's kind of where I'm looking at. Um, that that they could have addressed it in this draft. A uh, couple other positions again. It, you know, if if they didn't want to go offensive line, um, and you wanted to go, you know, again linebacker was was a position group that I, you know I wasn't very comfortable with, especially considering they let go. You know, Curtis Lofton, and we're trying to plug in a guy that you know I was never high on. Again, Akeem Dent. Not to make this the Akeem Dent slander show, but. Uh, you know, I, I never got that move, and and I never understood why. You know, they they thought that he could take over for for Curtis Lofton. But again, this was a great linebacker class. At the top, you had Luke Keekley. We already mentioned Levante David and Bobby Wagner. Um, Dante Hightower was also in the first round. But there's a guy that I liked that again didn't have a you know Pro Bowl type career or anything. But Nigel Bradham was always a solid player. Uh, ended up becoming a solid player on that Eagles Super Bowl team. Um, but he was picked 104 to the Bills. So, you know, if they weren't going to go offensive line, I wouldn't have mind seeing them take Nigel Bradham to, again, provide some more competition and not just give the job to Akeem Den and make him earn it um, and just really stabilize a position group that, other than Sean Weatherspoon, you know, doesn't leave you all, you know, tingly inside and very excited to talk about. So, you know, again, if they didn't go Bobby Massey and didn't go offensive line, I would have liked to seen them go Nigel Bradham here. Yeah, you know, as we mentioned, obviously a lot of this is hindsight, but there were options. There were options that on other people's boards looked like, you know, they were going to be better uh, players, at least potential uh, you know, down the road in the NFL. And this one certainly was a big, big reach, especially, again, for a player that 
was likely going to go in the late rounds, maybe even undrafted. The Falcons could have waited until the sixth round, seventh round, maybe to, to grab a player like this, especially for someone who's going to be developmental. Um, we did not have a fourth-round pick. Again, that pick was traded away in 2011. Uh, we did end up with two fifth-round picks, however. Uh, so let's go through those two guys real quick. Uh, at 157 out of Wisconsin, the Falcons drafted fullback Brady Ewing. And at pick 164 out of Troy, they picked defensive end Jonathan Massacoy. So let's start with Brady Ewing. Obviously, fifth-round pick. I am of the mindset, and I know many people agree with this, that a fifth-round pick is incredibly rich for a fullback in the NFL, and especially in today's NFL. Obviously, this was 2012, but even then, that was still, at the time, a very, very uh, rich pick for that position. Ewing, obviously, uh, the pre-draft hype on him was he was going to be the best fullback in his class for whatever that's worth. Uh, But again, it just feels like you know, you could wait until the sixth round, seventh round, even, you know, wait until these guys go undrafted to make this kind of move. And unfortunately, you know, Ewing didn't pan out. He ended up being essentially made of glass by the time he made it to the NFL. So Matt, what are your thoughts on fullback Brady Ewing and his drafting in the fifth round? Yeah, I'm of the same mindset too, that picking a fullback in round five is is very rich for my taste. It's tough to judge this one just because, you know, Ewing did suffer two you know, serious, you know, knee injuries to start off his Falcons career and never really saw the field because of it. So again, I would have liked to seen, I guess, what the vision was, but at the same time, you consider who, you know, they brought in to be offensive coordinator that year, Dirk Cutter, you know, doesn't really, as we've seen now more and more, unfortunately, you know, he is not good at cultivating a run game. Uh, so, so to bring in a fullback to do so, he's a vertical passing game type coordinator. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, again, you look at great, uh, Brady Ewing, you look at his measurables, you see that he was six foot two forty, ran a four, seven, six, jumped 36 and a half inches, 10 foot broad. I mean, very, Kyle, very Kyle Juszczyk like, so I would have loved to seen a healthy Brady Ewing in, you know, in a Kyle Shanahan offense in 2015, God willing, he could stay healthy. Um, so, you know, that would have been cool and that would have made some sense, I guess. Um, but for for the time that they selected him, for the coordinator they selected him for, didn't make a lot of sense. And again, you, you know, injuries are bad luck and that's ultimately why it didn't work out. But also the process and the logic behind it didn't make sense. You know, you could see some logic and process with the first two picks trying to get, you know, big offense alignment. You don't really see it here with a fullback in a dirt cutter style offense. So, um, that you know, again, a head scratching move. Ultimately, like I said, didn't work out because of the injuries, but also the process was kind of flawed as well. Yeah, that's that's really an excellent point about the mismatch between what the front office was doing in the draft and what the Falcons were trying to do offensively. You know, with dirt cutter. So this felt like a really weird move with what, you know, Cutter was bringing in, the four verts, uh, you know, the screen game. Uh, fullback really is not going to be a, a major option here. And uh, it, this is maybe one of the first cracks we're seeing with Dimitrov and the coaching staff where he's going in one direction and they're going in another. Maybe, you know, the drafting of Julio Jones uh, may have been the first crack between uh, Smitty and what he wanted to accomplish and where, where Dimitrov thought this team should be heading. Uh, so the next pick, uh, Jonathan Massacoy, he also had a, a bit of a rough time in Atlanta, but I, I think for different circumstances, not due to the injuries, but 
he was a guy that came out with a ton of potential. I think you know fans looked at him as being someone that could grow into a, a, a decent pass rusher over time. Um, but he got buried on the bench by Mike Smith, and this you know was an unfortunate trend with Smitty in his time, and especially the last few years in Atlanta. Uh, Massacoy and, and the guy like Lawrence Sibberry, these are guys who were drafted mid-rounds to become developmental uh, players to turn into hopefully future pass rushers in the NFL. And Massacoy just didn't get a ton of opportunities until there were injuries that forced it on the coaching staff. Um, so your thoughts on Massacoy, the pick, and whether or not his lack of productivity uh, in the NFL was uh, about him or about the coaching staff? Yeah, I mean, it kind of sums up this class you know, pretty well to say that John Massacoy was arguably the, the best pick of this entire class. Oh, man, that's brutal. But cer- certainly a player that was a very useful rotational pass rusher. And, you know, I think your point about, you know, Mike Smith, um, you know, insisting on sticking with the veterans and not, you know, developing the youth and not, you know, um, rolling with some of the young guys at times. I mean, I think that kind of was, you know, the undoing of John Maskoy's career. Um, and that's why when Dan Quinn came, it was kind of a breath of fresh air because, you know, he was so willing to throw out the young guys so early. And and who's to say, you know, Massacoy couldn't have had more of an impact. You know, he would have never, you know, became a, a pro bowler or anything or Jonathan uh, or John Abraham. But, I mean, he could have been at least a Croy Beerman or at least had more of an impact as Croy Beerman. I mean, you know, you look, you look at his numbers. I mean, he was still able to get four or five sacks a couple years um, in the depth role. And, you know, we'll never know what, what could have become of him if, if he was given, you know, more uh, more of a workload. But, um, yeah, again, for a fifth-round pick, um, this is kind of what you expect. Um, at the very least, the floor is a rotational guy that can contribute. And if he becomes something else and blossoms into something more, you know, it, it's it's like you hit a double or a triple on that pick. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I would have loved to seen him more. And that was kind of, uh, you know, us as a fan base, one of our bigger – bigger gripes was, you know, they, they didn't use the young guys enough, um, you know, later in Mike Smith's tenure, but, uh, certainly liked the pick probably wouldn't have done anything different, honestly. Um, had I had a do over, I, I, I thought, you know, for what they needed, they needed to continue to add pieces to that edge rushing unit. Cause again, we're still on a never ending search for a quality pass rush. Um, and, and the only way to get there is continue to throw dart throws at some of these guys. And they threw a dart throw at, at Maskoy, and and I'd say it was a hit um, as far as, you know, a fifth round, late fifth round pick goes. Yeah, I think the thing to remember is fifth round picks tend to not work out in the NFL. The success rate for these guys is really low. You know, for every Grady Jarrett that you find in the fifth round, there's 30, 40, 50 guys that just never pan out. Uh, so I, I think the fact that, you know, Maskoy stuck around for a little bit, um, did produce some productivity, you know, and and I think the pick made sense. He was a guy that, uh, you know, had some productivity in college, and and you know the Falcons made a move to try to develop him, and just didn't pan out over the long term. Now the the last two picks for the Falcons in this draft class, I want to go through these real quick. In the sixth round, at one ninety two out of Mississippi State, they took safety Charles Mitchell. He's a guy that I think ultimately just flamed out. I don't, I don't even know if he played uh, much on the team at all. Um, and then in the seventh round with the 249th pick of the South Carolina, they took defensive tackle Travian Robertson. He actually stuck around a little bit more than the, uh, I remembered. He was there for about three years 
Never really made much of a splash. He had a hard time, you know, really getting a lot of playing time. Matt, any final thoughts on these draft picks that wrap up this 2012 draft class? Uh, not, not too much. I mean, again, Charles Mitchell, you know, I guess they were looking for special teamers at that point. Um, you know, they had William Moore, um, just gave him a contract, um, the year or so before I I think. Right. So, um, not certain, not a guy that they were looking to, you know, take over or anything. Um, and, and at that point in round six, again, there wasn't, you know, when you get to this point in the draft, like you said, um, you're kind of just hoping to get lucky more or less or, or drafting for traits, which wasn't necessarily um, the method or, or the approach that the Smith and Dimitrov, you know, pairing took as far as, you know, finding, just trying to draft athletes and trying to look for traits. I mean, you know, they, they did always look for that good three cone time. That's something that always uh, known for. Um, but, you know, as you saw with the Quinn years, I mean, they were more about traits based, um, athletes and prospects, you know, over anything else. Um, so with this Mitchell pick, I mean, again, um, hoping to get lucky, hoping to find a special team or they did not. Um, it is funny looking at the pick right after 193, Tom Compton tackle from South Dakota, who ended up, you know, playing a significant role on the 2016 Super Bowl team and actually had to play some some snaps in that Super Bowl when Schrader went down briefly with an injury. So again, we, we talked at the top about, you know, trying to invest in the offensive line. You know, Tom Compton maybe would have been a better pick here um, had you done things a little bit differently at the top. You know, take Tom Compton at 192 and there's your swing tackle, um, you know, for the next couple of years. I mean, you, you don't expect to find a starter there, but again, how can you in, in the round six? If you do, you get absolutely lucky, but more or less you're looking for depth guys um, that can contribute. And then Fabian Robertson, I mean, you know, it, it's you're at the bottom of the barrel in the draft here. Um, we're in comp pick range. And, and like you said, Travian Robertson actually ended up sticking on the team for a couple of years. Um, you know, he was kind of – you know, the, the depth chart at defensive tackle was um, a lot steeper than it was at edge. So that's kind of, you know, was working against him as far as, you know, his long-term outlook or his upside, you know, because he had guys like Jonathan Babineau. Um, I think you still had Preya Jerry in 2012, right? Um, you had Corey Corey Peters, Vance, Swagger Vance Walker. So it was kind of tough for Robertson to really carve out much of a role rather than, you know, other than a couple snaps here and there maybe on game days. But again, uh, he was able to show enough to, to stick on the team as long as um, I think him and Peter Kahn's both were three, three years. Right. And then Holmes was, believe it or not, was four years. So again, for seventh round, make it three years. Uh, that That's an accomplishment. So I'll take that as a win. Um, for Travian Robertson. All right. We've talked about uh, Falcons free agency. We've talked about this draft class. Uh, so Matt, why don't you give me your final thoughts on what GM Thomas Dimitrov did in this 2012 season? So I'll say, you know, to sum up as far as Dimitrov's um, work in this offseason, he, he was more or less on autopilot. There, there weren't a lot of moves that he made um, to really advance the team forward. I do want to bring up again the, the move to trade a seventh round pick for Samuel 
and you know the very savvy, underrated signing of Robert McLean. Those were his two biggest moves. Those were what what uh, are what he can hang his hat on for the 2012 offseason to really get the team kind of over the hump in the playoffs, winning their first playoff game of the Mike Smith era, the Thomas Mitchell era. Um, but by and large, you know, he kind of missed a lot more than he hit. And we kind of just laid it out here in the draft. I mean, this was a big swing and a miss um, on the 2012 draft. And, and those had consequences that reverberated in the 2013 and 2014 and kind of played a part um, in those ceilings. Uh, those seasons being such a failure, but um, you know, again, he made enough moves and because of the fact that the season was, you know, such a success or at least, you know, in Falcons terms of success because they made it, you know, as far as the NFC title game, um, you know, again, uh, he kind of gets somewhat of a pass, but, you know, looking at it, you know, if, if I was to grade it, I'd probably give him in the C and it could have been much worse. And I could be convinced of that, um, you know, had, had, he not made those moves for Samuel and, and, and McLean to really fortify that cornerback spot. Yeah, I think that's a really fair assessment. I, I think he, he did a good job in free agency, you know, making the trade for Asante Samuel, bringing in Robert McLean. And honestly, I think it was about the guys he kept, you know, keeping around uh, guys like uh, John Abraham, Todd McClure, Corey Bierman, Thomas Decoud, Harry Douglas, uh, even Brent Grimes, even though that didn't ultimately work out. And then, and then depth guys like Jason Snelling and Vance Walker, who, you know, would make contributions through the year. Uh, but ultimately, this draft class was just dreadful. Um, and I know it may not be fair. I think the move for cons made sense. But the reach on uh, Lamar Holmes was just just a terrible move. Uh, and then the remaining guys just, they didn't pan out. And when you give up as much draft capital as the Falcons did in 2011 to get Julio Jones, you have to hit on that subsequent draft class. And he didn't. And this was really the first big failure of a draft class that he had uh, in Atlanta. And, and I think this one set up the team for the long term with many issues with the depth of the roster, with you know some key positions, as we mentioned, you know, we've mentioned pass rusher, center, etc. Et I don't want to keep hammering on that. But given the, the totality of what happened in this season, they went 13 and three in large part because of what he did in free agency. So even though the draft was a failure, I feel like free agency was good enough to make this a C. If we're being really generous, maybe a B minus, but a C feels like the perfect average of uh, what he he accomplished uh, in the draft and the free agency combined. Which I mean, there's no question this is the worst draft class in the Dimitrov era. You would agree with that statement, right? I mean, oh yeah, definitely, without a doubt. You look at, I mean, every single class other than this one. He's gotten at least one marquee player, if not more. I mean, 28, 2008, you know, Matt Ryan will stop the list there. 2009, he at least got William Moore. He swung and missed on his first round pick in Prey Jerry. 2010, uh, you know, he got Sean Weatherspoon. And 2011, he got Julio Jones. You get to this point, I mean, there's there's nothing that he got that, that was a long-term asset for them. So when you swing that, you know, when you miss that badly – Again, it has consequences, and that, I think that's a big reason why 2013 and 2014 were such failures. And we went through it. I mean, there there was players to be had in this class. This was not like a, a talent, you know, deficient class. In Seattle, I mean, they they literally you know built their dynasty with this draft class. So again, this was a huge, huge black eye on, on the tenure of Thomas Dimitrov. 
Um, he was very fortunate to still survive it and get a second, you know, bite at the apple with Dan Quinn. Um, but you know, other general managers might not have survived that, but because of his, you know, kind of history outside of this one, this was kind of an outlier. You could say, uh, I think that's why, you know, you can't, you know, put this too much on him. Um, you know, again, cause for the, for the majority of his tenure, I mean, he, he did hit on more picks than I think he missed on and, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, um, what the future holds now that they're looking for a new GM, you know, will we regret moving on from Thomas Dimitrov? I mean, that, that'll be a fascinating um, kind of story to watch. Cause again, I think he's had more good classes than bad classes. This just happened to be a dreadful one. <laughs> yeah. I think dreadful is the perfect word to describe the 2012 Falcons draft class. Uh, so Matt, thank you again for joining me on this special uh, look back at the 2012 season with Thomas Dimitrov and how he did as our former GM. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you and what you've got going on? Yeah, well, thank you again, DW. This was a blast. Enjoyed doing it. Um, folks listening can find me on Twitter at Matt Carley, M-A-T-T-K-A-R-O-L-Y. Um, as for what the future holds, as you mentioned, you know, I'm uh, formerly of Rise Up Reader, now defunct. Um, rest in peace to the Rise Up Reader um, you know, website. Mike, uh, you know, put it to rest. Um, had a good run. Um, and now, you know, I, I don't know what I'm planning on doing. I'm free agent right now. Um, kind of just enjoying guest appearances on podcasts like this and just tweet about the Falcons. So uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and, you know, I'm sure I'll keep everyone uh, updated on what the future holds for me. As for you guys, as always, you can find me on Twitter at FalcoholicDW. Updates on this podcast at FalcoholicPod. And of course, our articles daily at TheFalcoholic.com. So for Matt Carley, this is David Walker. Thank you guys for listening in. We'll talk with you next time.